0: Oh, man, that's good stuff already, right? Ah, Hallelujah. Uh, What a a powerful name it is. This is what I'm thinking. Uh, What a powerful name it is. Powerful in that when we declare the name of Jesus to our neighbors and among the nations, dead men come to life. What what a powerful name it is. And as we sang uh, the very first song, uh, second song today, there was a line in that song that says, in every corner of the earth. And I got a text message three seconds later, three seconds later from Central Asia that said, indeed, in every corner of the earth, greetings from our corner of the earth. And I'm thinking about how they are proclaiming the name of Jesus in that place, the powerful name of Jesus, and men are coming to life. And I'm thinking about how tomorrow uh, we send another family to a different corner of the earth, to take the name of Jesus to that dark place in Thailand. And thinking about how we have welcomed back, even just last night, a family from another corner of the earth to spend a little bit of time in the United States to get some medical care that they desperately need. And we'll be able to love on them for uh, several weeks. And they are there to proclaim the powerful name of Jesus in every corner of the earth. Oh, man. And dead men come to life. And they're given hope for all of eternity. It's a powerful name. Let's be declaring it here in our corner of the earth. Do you have your Bible this morning? First Peter chapter 1 is where you need to turn. Uh, we're going to continue on our study of First Peter. We're making progress, believe it or not, we're making progress slowly, steadily, but surely. Two weeks ago, we wrestled with the purpose of God in the various trials that distress us. Various trials distress us, and yet God has a purpose. We took courage. We even rejoiced to know that these trials actually prove our faith, which is precious and valuable, even beyond the purest gold. And then last week, we rejoiced with joy inexpressible and full of glory, knowing that though we have not seen Jesus, we are loving Jesus. Knowing that we do not see Jesus now, we are believing in Jesus. And praise God that though we have not seen him with our physical eyes, like Peter did in the flesh, we can, we have, and we do see him with spiritual eyes in the Gospels by grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit. My question for you last week was, have you seen him? Have you seen Jesus in the Gospels? Do you know him to be the perfect son of God? Do you know that he lived a perfect life? Do you know that he died a substitutionary death for us? Do you know that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures? Do you know that he rose the third day over sin and death? And the devil conquering every enemy that we could never conquer. He rose triumphant from the grave. We sing about that a lot this morning. Do you know these things? Have you seen these things? And are you believing in him? That was the second question. Are you believing in him? Not just agreeing with the things that we've talked about. Not just giving mental assent and saying yes to those things. But are you putting your whole trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Resting your whole weight on him? Third question was, are you loving him? Are you walking with him? This is about a relationship. It's about walking with Jesus every day by faith. And are you rejoicing? Are you rejoicing? And, and this, is, this is where I've struggled. And even, even this week, um, having taught those things, um, I, I struggle with the rejoicing and want to pray continually with David in Psalm 51, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore this joy so that I might rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Well, as we move on in the text today, it's probably a good idea to remember why 1 Peter was written in the first place. When we think about the letter generally, we recognize that it was written to encourage and inspire faithful endurance among these scattered, exiled, chosen followers of Jesus. It was written generally to remind them of who they are in Christ so that they will persevere in the faith in a very hostile world. Specifically, when we look at these few verses in chapter 1, This opening doxology is intended to express praise to God, right? The very beginning of it, the very beginning of it. In fact, this first phrase is what all the rest of the phrases that have taken us now a month to work through. They all modify this first phrase when it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this one giant run-on complex sentence that goes all the way through verse 12 that we'll finish today. And interestingly, verses 3 through 12, this doxology of introduction actually covers the whole purpose of the letter. It encourages and inspires faithful endurance as well. And as we come to the end of the doxology today, we want to make the circle back to the opening statement of praise. We want to join Peter in blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read today 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verses 3 through 12 because it's all one sentence, and then we're going to look verse, very closely at verses 10 through 12. This is God's word here. ...you have been distressed by various trials... ...so that the proof of your faith... ...being more precious than gold... ...which is perishable... ...even though tested by fire... ...may be found to result in praise... ...and glory and honor... ...at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him... ...you love Him. And though you do not see Him now... ...but believe in Him... ...you rejoice with joy inexpressible... ...and full of glory... ...obtaining as the outcome of your faith... ...the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we bless you today for all that you are. You are the God, the only God, the one true and living God. There's none like you in the heavens or on the earth or under the earth. To whom could we compare you? You alone are worthy of all our praise, all of our devotion, all of our affection. You are holy, holy. Holy, you are righteous and just and true. You are patient and kind and so full of grace. So we bless your name in this place today for who you are. And we bless your name for what you do. You've created everything that exists. You uphold it all by the word of your power. You hold the whole world in your hands. And you've saved us by sending your son to live a life that we could not live. To die a death that we deserve to die and to rise in victory over every enemy which we could never defeat. You have chosen us according to your foreknowledge, and you have caused us to be born again by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We bless your name for who you are, and for all you have done for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So there's a, a lot going on as always in, the, in this first bit it really in all of first Peter it is like it is like theology concentrate I was talking to somebody about this last week and maybe maybe you remember um, maybe some of you still do buy orange juice frozen orange juice concentrate I used to have that some when I was a kid and I could not resist when I would take that out of the freezer and open it up to pour it in the thing I had to lick it like like a pop <laughs> I had like a popsicle um, And it was too much, right? It's too—it's like too concentrated for me to handle. I feel like 1 Peter is that way sometimes. It's so concentrated, it's so rich, I can't quite handle it. I I don't want to dilute it, though. That's not the purpose of this illustration. Don't don't push that too far. We don't want to dilute it. We want to receive it fully concentrated. There's a lot here. So look at verse 10, the very first bit. He says, as to this salvation, we've talked about this salvation last week. We've talked about it for the last month or so. Last week, particularly, we talked about the various tenses of salvation. We talked about how sometimes we we think about, we talk about salvation in the past tense, that we have been saved when we first believed in Jesus and experienced conversion. We came in that moment to know God's holiness, we came in that moment to know our sinfulness and Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, and we responded in that moment with repentance and faith. We have been saved. But not everyone in this room can say that. Some of you have not experienced that. Some of you have not been awakened to God's holiness and your sinfulness and Christ's sacrifice. Some of you have not repented of your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you right off the bat today to do that. Turn away from your sin and turn toward Christ and trust in him today. We talk about salvation in the past tense. We also talk about salvation in the present tense. All this happens in the Bible over and over. We talk about how we are being saved how we go on believing and experiencing sanctification. We continue to repent of our sins. We continue to trust in Christ as we walk by faith. We are growing in Christlikeness each and every day. Sometimes we talk about salvation in the present tense, and sometimes we talk about it in the future tense, that we will be saved when we no longer need to believe because our faith will be sight. We sang about that a little bit this morning. When we stand, that day when we stand with a multitude of believers from every nation, Every nation and all tribes, all peoples and tongues and languages, we stand with a multitude that no one can count before the throne and before the Lamb, and we sing praises forevermore. We will be saved one day. It was the present tenseness of our salvation, though, that Peter was emphasizing in the text last week and is emphasizing in the text even now. As we go on loving Jesus and trusting in Jesus, rejoicing in Jesus... As we do that, we are already experiencing the salvation that will be completely fulfilled when we stand before him in glory. But we get a taste of that even now. We are obtaining, as our faith, the outcome, the salvation of our souls. It is this glorious, gracious, Christ-centered salvation that we're talking about in verse 10 when he says, And to this salvation the prophets, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, verse 11 seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And there's a lot going on right there. Even right there, we could probably spend a whole week. It is super interesting. The prophets that he is speaking of in these verses, I believe, are Old Testament prophets. There are some scholars that would argue that he's talking about New Testament prophets. I think that argument is really weak, and I think he's going to get to that. I think he's going to get to that later on in the text as he talks about those who preach the good news post-resurrection. But here, in this verse, he's talking about Old Testament prophets who spoke of things to come concerning Jesus, things to come concerning grace. Tom Schreiner had a great quote where he links the past few weeks all together by saying, The salvation believers experience now, which will be consummated in the future, was also prophesied in the past. It's a good thought, right? The, the salvation that we are experiencing, that we, have, we are obtaining as our faith. The salvation of our souls, right? The salvation that we are experiencing now, which we will experience in fullness on a day to come, was prophesied long ago by the prophets in a whole bunch of different ways. This whole idea that the text talks about of the prophets making careful searches and inquiries is super interesting as well. In other words, these prophets didn't just deliver the message about the Messiah to come on behalf of the Lord. They didn't just speak these things and then walk away. No, they themselves were super interested in seeing all of this come to pass. They were hoping that the Messiah would come to them in their lifetime. And they wanted to know all the details, all the details about the time and the place. They wanted to know the person, in fact, who would be Emmanuel, God with us. How how will all of this happen? Even, Even as they spoke about it to come, they were not just... Content to deliver the message and walk away. They wanted to know all about him. They wanted to discover him. They wanted to know him. They wanted to experience him. For themselves, they wanted to see these things. And so, they searched. And they studied. They asked questions. They tried to connect one text to another and see a bigger, clearer picture. They studied all of the scriptures. Karen Job says, Clearly, there was great interest among the prophets in when their visions of the future would be realized, with specific attention to whether the prophet in his generation would still be alive in the time of fulfillment. You've got to know that as these guys prophesied of the Messiah to come, that they would think, oh, we want to see this. We want to, experience. We want to meet him. We want to know him. Will it happen in our lifetime, in our generation? Will he come? I think Karen Jobes is exactly right about that. R.C. Sproul said something really interesting. He said the prophets did not always understand the things they taught. That might blow your mind if you think about it all day. Uh, the prophets did not always understand the things they taught. The prophets themselves, who were faithful to those promises, inquired and in searched for meaning, but they did not always know it. They had to wait to see. That, that's what really caught my attention. They had to wait to see, because what we're going to see later on in the text is we don't have to wait anymore. We we are of the period of history where there's no more waiting. He has come. We're not talking about the Messiah to come. We're talking about the Messiah who came and died and rose again. Notice in this text that it was the Spirit of Christ that was at work in these prophets. It's the Spirit of Christ who revealed these things to them. That's another way to talk about the Holy Spirit bunch of ways to talk about the Holy Spirit this is the third person of the Trinity the Holy Spirit he is the one according to this text who is inspiring their writings he is the one who is making these predictions he is the one who is revealing these things to him Peter talks about this in 2nd Peter a little bit more when he says in 2nd Peter chapter 1 verse 19 so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That's what was going on back in the Old Testament days. Men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God and made these predictions about the Messiah who was coming You're going to see, as we move through the text today, a continuity here between the Old Testament prophets who predicted the Messiah and the New Testament preachers who preached that Jesus was that Messiah and invited people constantly to be saved by grace through faith in Him. It was the Spirit who was working through both of them, pointing people to Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does, right? Points people to the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophet said, the Messiah is coming. And the New Testament preachers said the Messiah has come. Both by the Holy Spirit. Notice that the Holy Spirit revealed to them that the Christ would suffer and that glory would follow. That's interesting, right? That the Holy Spirit revealed to these prophets of old that the Christ would suffer and that glories would follow. It's not, I I, I think we see that all throughout the prophets, and yet. Jewish people for generations looked for a Messiah who would conquer, not a Messiah who would suffer. And yet the prophets taught that the Messiah would suffer. We see this in Psalm 22 in particular. You know Psalm 22 because it's what Jesus quoted on the cross as he died for our sins. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now what I want you to know before we even read this text is is that what Jesus was doing as he said that was not just making a statement about how the Father turned his face away from him. The Father had forsaken him in that moment as he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was also saying, you want to understand what's going on here, read Psalm 22. Because Psalm 22 in Jesus' day was not called Psalm 22. It was called, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how Jewish people in the first century knew the Psalms, not by a number. That came along much later, right? we're thankful for those numbers, but those numbers came along much later. In Jesus' day, they would have known each Psalm by the first line of that Psalm. And so in many ways, as Jesus hangs on the cross, he says, what's going on here is a fulfillment of Psalm 22. Later on, beyond the first part of this that we know so well, the, the speaker in the Psalm says, I am a worm and not a man. What I understand what's going on here is I'm being crushed, so that you can be clothed in royal purple. It's a big part of what's going on. But Psalm 22 predicts the sufferings of the Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I have no rest. I mean, just think for a moment about the agony the perfect son of god the second person of the trinity who has dwelt in perfect harmony and fellowship and intimacy with the father for all of eternity bearing our sins in his body and being forsaken of god because of it i don't know all the mysteries of that but that's huge that's huge that he would say this probably the most familiar prediction of the christ suffering in the prophets is isaiah 53 Some of you have this committed to memory. Psalm 53 says, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He's no stately majesty or form that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He, this is speaking of the Christ to come, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows, like we sing about a while ago, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Verse 6 maybe captures the best of it. All of us, like sheep, have Gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The iniquity, the sin of all of us to fall on him. Christ suffered in our place for our sins. And the prophets spoke of this, not just in those two places, but in countless others. The prophets predicted the Christ's suffering, but the prophets also predicted the Christ's glory. That it was not just a story of suffering, it was not just a story of sorrow, it was not just a story of death, it was a story of triumph ultimately. Psalm 2 is one of these places when it says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron or rule them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The Christ is triumphant. The the Christ is victorious. The Christ is glorified. Psalm 16 is another one of these places. When it says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. It is not a story of suffering and death alone. There is glory to follow. And Peter is saying here, that's what the prophet said from the beginning. By the Spirit, they predicted the sufferings and the glories of the Christ. Maybe the best place we see this and the earliest place we see this in the Old Testament is way back in Genesis chapter 3. I think in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, right, after Adam and Eve sin against God, they do what he said not to do, and consequences come. I think in verse 3, verse 15, we see both the suffering of the Christ and the victory of the Christ. We see the sufferings of the Christ and the glories of the Christ when God announces to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Percy being the Christ, and he shall bruise you on the head. That's victory, right? That's victory. And I thought Mel Gibson creatively captured this in the Passion of the Christ when there's this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when Christ rises to go to the cross and a snake slithers through and he stomps it on the head. You remember that? Yeah, he will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. I think that's talking about sufferings of Christ snake is going to bite there will be sufferings there will be pain but he conquers in the end but what i want what i want you to see here and we could talk about this all day is that all throughout the old testament we see predictions of the sufferings of the christ we see predictions of the glories of the christ one final thing to point out here in this section there's a principle here that it's difficult for us to swallow it is that suffering is the path to glory Suffering is the path to glory. We see this all throughout the Bible. Peter didn't like that plan when he first heard about it, when Jesus first talked to him about it, right? When Jesus first talked to Peter, plainly, about his impending betrayal, his impending crucifixion, and even his impending resurrection, Peter didn't want to hear anything about it. And when Jesus speaks about the, the necessity of it, Peter rebukes the Lord, right? Peter says, you can't talk this way. This is not the path. And Jesus says, oh, but it is the path. It is not only the path for me, but it will be the path for you also. Peter came to see suffering is the path to glory in the life of Jesus. He later later witnessed this principle in the life of his friends. Suffering is the path to glory. He saw it with James. He saw it with John. He saw it with others. Came to experience it in his own life. He came to learn that suffering is the path to glory. And finally, he came to preach it to these brothers in this letter. Look later on in chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. You catch that? Suffering, the path to glory, the road to glory is the road of suffering. He says it in chapter 5 as well, when he speaks specifically to the elders. He says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. A partaker of the suffering and a partaker of the glory. That is the path. Suffering leads to glory. Thought in this whole section, John MacArthur made an interesting pastoral application when he talked about these prophets and their longing to search. Their longing to experience these things. He says, if the greatness of the salvation yet to come was intense, it was the intense preoccupying study of all the prophets, then it ought to be just as precious, if not more so, to those believers today who have the full revelation. The prophets sought out all these things. They predicted it. By the Holy Spirit, they predicted these things, but they wanted to know. They wanted to experience. They dug in. They did the hard work to see. Is it precious to us now that it has been revealed? Or do we get bored? I mean, I just want to say, like, if, if you're bored already, we've been at this for 12 minutes or so. Like, If you're bored already at what we're talking about in this moment, are you interested in the Messiah? Are you interested in these things about Jesus at all? Shouldn't be boring to us. Look at verse 12. It says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Those prophets were not serving themselves, even though they delighted in these truths, they clung to these truths, they held on to this hope that the Messiah would come and deliver God's people. It was revealed to them, the text says, that they were not serving themselves. This was not about them, but it was about you. They were serving you, and this is a biblical theme. We see it in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times... Was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Paul is saying, All those things that were written of old were written for you, so that you will have hope. He says the same thing in First Corinthians chapter ten. Now these things, that, that is a specific reference to the Exodus failures, the failures of God's people during the Exodus. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. These things happened to them and were given to you for your instruction. In other words, this is for you that these things are written. Look at Romans chapter 4. Talking about Abraham and his faith. It says, therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Tom Schreiner said, in other words, the Old Testament prophecies not only apply to Peter's readers, but were intended for them. And not only apply to us, they were intended for us. This goes beyond what we typically think about when we talk about Old Testament prophecy as if somehow it was mostly intended for them and somehow secondarily applies to us. But Schreiner here presses it further. He says it was intended for us. These things were back then were intended for us so that we would know Jesus, so that we could see him, not just in the Gospels like we talked about last week, but so that we could see Jesus throughout the entire Bible. And friends, you can see him in the entire Bible. It was all written for us. Read on in in 1 Peter chapter 1. In these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Those who preach the gospel are like the prophets. Only they don't speak like the prophets did of one who will come. Rather, they testify often as eyewitnesses of the one who has come, who has lived, who has died, and who has risen again. They announced the good news to these people, to Peter's audience. They announced good news. Peter was one of them who announced this good news. They announced this good news to Peter's audience and also to us as well. They have announced this good news. And if you're a Christian, I want you to think for a minute about the people. Probably in your life, multiple people. Probably couldn't count them on your hands. I want you to think about the people Who announced the good news to you? Who preached the gospel to you? Who who preached this to you? I want to say share, but Dylan said we don't say share. We don't talk about sharing the gospel. We talk about preaching the gospel. Right? So, who preached the gospel to you? Who was it? Was it mom or dad? Brother or sister? Neighbor? Friend? Sunday school teacher? Classmate? Coach? Boss? Employee? The. All of the above. Who was it that preached the gospel to you? Thank God for them, right? Thank God for people who came and preached good news to you so that you could be saved. Recognize, recognize, even as we consider all the people who preached the gospel to us, that there are billions of people around the globe right now who have never, ever had even one single person preach one little bit of good news to them, of the. Good news to them. You had dozens, dozens of people preach the good news of Jesus Christ to you. And there are billions of people who've never even heard his name. When we heard from these people who preached the gospel to us, the text teaches us that we didn't just hear from them, we didn't just hear from grandma or grandpa, we heard from the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who was doing all this. It was the spirit of Christ in the prophets. It's the Holy Spirit in the preachers. And let's be the next people to be instruments of the spirit of God. Like let's let's be on that list. So that someone else would say, I heard heard the gospel from Chris. I heard the gospel from Joe. I heard the gospel from Isaac. I heard the gospel from all of these people. Let's be those mouthpieces of the Holy Spirit who preach the good news to our neighbors and to the nations. And so I want to lay the question out that I've laid out before you a, a bunch of times. Who's next? Who's next to go to the nations? Who's next to leave this life that they are living here in America comfortable and safe and secure and happy? Who's next to leave all of this to go to the ends of the earth? To go to the furthest corners of the earth where there is only darkness and no light and take the light of Christ to them. This past week, I was privileged to be part of a sending celebration of the International Mission Board where we, we Southern Baptists, sent 54 more workers to the nations. 54 more people ready to uproot here and plant themselves somewhere else for the first time and live, and work, and preach, to preach the good news to the nations. It was really interesting this time. It's the second time I've been a part of one of these. Last time, it was almost all young couples, young couples with young children. And that's the norm for these kind of sending celebrations. But this time, it was all kinds of folks. There were several young couples with young kids. There were several singles. There were several single women, which is not abnormal, Not abnormal in IMB for single women to be going. There were a couple single dudes. That is unusual to the shame of young dudes in the SBC. There, There were unusually a couple of young men, young single men, ready to say, I'm going. I'm going to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Listen to this. There were also a couple of old couples. One of them had served uh, like an entire career on the mission field, raised their young kids on foreign soil, came back home when their kids went to college, worked in the church for about 15 years, and now their kids are grown and and they've got grandkids and they're old. I'll just say it that way. And they're ready to go back. Like we we got a few years left. We've got great freedom. We're going, working for the company a second time. Hallelujah for that, right? There was one pastor who was about my age, who said, I've I've worked in the church for a while now and I I can't get around it. I gotta go. The people in my town have heard and there are billions who have not. I've gotta go. It was the coolest thing. All kinds of different folks ready to go. So I, I just wanna say, who's next? Who's next in this room to go to the nations? Who's next to go preach the gospel, to commit themselves to ministry in a local church as a vocation? Because friends, if we're gonna keep launching people out to the nations, there have to be local churches planted, and pastored to raise these folks up. Every one of those people who stood and we said, let's go, we're we're sending you, we're praying for you, we'll go. They said, my name is such and such, I'm going to so and so, and I'm from this church. I'm from X church. There must be churches here to raise up the generation of workers. And there must be pastors of those churches, so who's next? Who's next to say, I'm I'm ready, I'm ready to learn what it means to preach the gospel. I'm ready to learn what it means to lead in a local church. Who's next? That's a question we need to be wrestling with. The last thing I want you to see in this little bit part of the text, though, is what a privilege it is to live now. What, what, What a privilege it is to live now. These things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. What a privilege it is to hear these things fulfilled, to know about the Christ. Who was he and what did he do? We know it was Jesus of Nazareth who died on the cross and rose again. We don't have to ask those questions. We don't have to wonder what the Messiah will be like. We know who he was and we know what he did. Matthew talks about this a couple of times in his gospel, about what a privilege it is to know, to see, to hold. What the prophets only anticipated, what the prophets only predicted. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11 says, Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. We talked about this in here a couple of Sunday nights ago. John the Baptist is the greatest prophet of all the prophets. John the Baptist is the greatest. Jesus says that. And yet, look what he says next. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He's talking about us, the least in the kingdom of heaven, the least who don't look ahead to the Messiah, but look back to the Messiah greater than he, because we're not anticipating anymore. We're trusting in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it more clearly in chapter 13, verse 16, when he says, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets, many righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I fear that so often in the church today, in this room, we long for the Old Testament days. We like wish we could live back then when bushes burned and God spoke out loud. Prophets walked around. Seas were parted. Bread appeared in the morning. I fear that in the church we long for those Old Testament days. I fear even in the church we long for New Testament days. We long to walk with Peter and James and John as they walked with Jesus. This text, though, teaches us that we, friends, we live in the most privileged time in history. We live in the most privileged time in history, in the history of God's people. We live in the most privileged time to know Christ and to make Him known. We shouldn't long for any other time, except maybe the day to come when we will see Him face to face. It's not better back then. It's not better back then. We know Him today. We live in the most privileged time in history to know Christ and to make Him known. And so we praise the Lord. We bless His name like the text teaches us. But friends, we also live in the most lost time in human history. More lost people on the planet right now than there have ever been. Ever. It's the most lost time in human history. The greatest need there has ever been. See the the predicament we're in? We're like the most privileged in the most lost time. What are we going to do with that? Just hang out here? Get together once a week and celebrate it? Are we going to go talk to our neighbors? Are we going to move among the nations? And then look what he says. As as if to finish it off, like the cherry on top, he says, things into which the angels long to look. (laughs) This reinforces the same point of privilege as we saw before. We we are most privileged of all. The prophets looked ahead to see the things that we know. The angels longed to look into the things that we experience. John MacArthur says of this word for look, he says, look literally means to stretch one's head forward or to bend down. Another form of the same word denotes what the Apostle John did at Jesus' tomb when he stooped in and looked and saw the linen wrappings lying there. The angels, as it were, want to get down close and look deeply into the matters related to salvation. Angels long to see this. One scholar likened the angel's posture here to wedding attendees who attempt to steal a glance at the bride just before her appearance. Maybe get a a glimpse of her walking past the window. That's what the angels long to do. The prophets longed for the Messiah to come. The angels long to see this salvation. We've experienced it. We are experiencing it. We are living in it. Let's stop longing for anything else. Scott McKnight said, the angels are brought in here not to invite us to speculate about all their activities, but to press on our minds the privileges of salvation. Neither the prophets nor the angels experience what the church assumes and enjoys today. Let's celebrate that. Stop longing for something else. Stop longing for the old days. Stop wishing to be an angel. Stop talking about your dead grandma becoming an angel. That's not better. It's not better than being a redeemed saint. Three applications from the text today. Number one, the good news of Jesus is not new. The good news of Jesus is not new. This has been the message all along, from Genesis, really chapter one, but Genesis on through, the message has always been salvation, It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Old Testament saints, B.C. saints looked forward to the Messiah. They looked forward to Christ, and they trusted in the Messiah to come. New Testament believers, A.D. saints, look backward to Christ and trust in him. It's always been about him. The Bible has always anticipated a Savior who would suffer for his people. The gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, is plan A. There's no plan B. So repent and believe today. There's, there's not another way. There's not a better thing coming. not like, oh, hang out, maybe, maybe, maybe a better offer. A, a better offer will come. No, there's no better offer than the one I'm delivering to you today. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved forever. No better offer. Number two, suffering is the path to Glory. This is the way it is in the kingdom of God. This is the way it was for Jesus himself. And this is the way it is for us. Suffering is certain and suffering is real. We talked about that a few weeks ago, about the distress that comes from these various trials, the grief that comes from these various trials. Suffering is certain and suffering is real. All but glory is also certain. And glory is also real. Knowing that, we can press on knowing that we can endure, knowing that we can persevere. Because, as I like to say, it won't always be like this. Glory is coming. It won't always be suffering. Glory is coming for those who are in Christ. Third application. What a time to be alive, right? Look around. We don't don't have a lot of other reason to say that other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? But because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can say, what a time to be alive. We can be encouraged, We are at an advantage over the prophets of old. We know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. We know that He is the long-awaited promised Messiah. We know that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We know that whoever believes in Christ will be saved. The puzzle is no longer missing the most important piece, as Sally Lloyd-Jones says. Christ has come. He has lived. He has died for our sins. And He has risen again. Be encouraged, and also be disciplined. I wonder what Isaiah, the great prophet, would think of us when our Bibles collect dust. I wonder what Isaiah would say about us in this room when we neglect even the reading of God's Word on a regular basis. Like we have all the dots to connect, and yet we care nothing about it. I wonder what Isaiah would say to Jeremiah. When he sees us skip church because we're tired from a long week. We get, we get a chance to reflect on and celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus weekly with brothers and sisters who also believe. I wonder what Isaiah and Jeremiah say when we're like, eh, I had a long week. I think I'll stay home and sleep, sleep in today. I wonder what Isaiah and Jeremiah would say to Moses when they see folks who became believers 30 years ago still drinking only spiritual milk having not learned to eat spiritual meat i wonder what these prophets of old would say to us with all of our advantages when we fail to take advantage of them friends we live in the most advantageous time in human history for christians and yet we do not take advantage of that time mostly because we're lazy or we're indifferent Or perhaps we've never really tasted of the sweetness of God's glory. So I invite you today to stop longing for the olden days and press in to all that God has given us this day. He's given us everything. Everything. Let's stand together and pray. Father in heaven, we we bless your name. We bless you because you have given us everything. pray in this moment that you will convict us of our laziness and our indifference to the wonderful gospel that you have delivered to us by your holy spirit through preachers convict us bring us to repentance that we would learn to investigate dissect, inspect, know the gospel. Bring us to repentance that we would also be bold to declare that gospel to our nation, to our neighbors, and to the nations. Father, I pray for brothers and sisters in this room who are wrestling, really wrestling with this. Am I next? Am am I next to go to the nations? Am I next to lead in a local church? Am I next to trust in Christ for salvation? God, speak clearly to people in this moment and give them courage to respond in obedience. In Christ's name we pray.